You can open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We will be taking a step out of the Gospel of John, but the thoughts today are directly related to our message last week concerning the Kingdom of God. And so I'll get into that in a moment. Um, at this time, rather than read, it's a lengthy text that I want to walk through with you today. And I'll just ask you to bow with me now in prayer. And then we will begin working through our thoughts concerning what is the church. So if you'll bow with me. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank You for this time and I thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You that You have all riches and all power, that You are a God who lacks nothing, and that Your provision for Your people is abounding. It's overflowing. That we've been blessed according to the riches of Your might and wealth and grace. Oh God, I pray that You would guide us here and now. Lord, help us to see the wonder of what You've done in Your Son for us. Help us to see, oh God, Your ongoing provision in Your people called the church and what it means for us, O oh Father, to live in such a way as to reflect you in our local assemblies. Father, give me grace. I pray that you would guard me from error, that you would lead us in the truth. Father, that you would strike down any thought or attitude that's not true. Father, help us to be committed to your word. I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified here and now and that there would be a powerful communication from you to us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a little bit odd perhaps for some of you to hear that we're not in John chapter 18, but as I mentioned, these thoughts that we're considering today are immediately related to the message last week. If you missed the message last week from John 18, I encourage you to go and listen to it online. It was called the kingdom of God, where Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And the focus of that sermon was seeing what is the essential nature of the kingdom of God? What is it really according to Jesus? And we're we're going to interact with some of those ideas again today, but it got me to thinking and meditating on the reality of the state of the church and what people assume that the church is in the world today. You know, there are many different ideas and views that Christians have over what the church even is. And if you go and look historically over the last 2000 years since Christ's ascension, there have been countless opinions and ideas as to what the church is. And there have even been some of these ideas that have been raised to the level of required dogma and demanded belief in certain traditions. And so I want to start by saying this. What is the church? The first thing for us to acknowledge is that we have absolutely zero authority to decide what the church is for ourselves. It's not up for us to say we think this is what the church is or what it ought to be. We have no right to do that. All that we are able to tell each other and tell others about this church that functions together is according to what the Scripture says. And I believe that this is one of the things that is causing much havoc in the world today. People do not understand what the church even is. And there's much chaos, there's much confusion that exists both among Christians and lost people when it comes to the church. And I believe there are two primary reasons 
why there's so much confusion about what the church is. Here's the first one. The first error that people tend to make is in determining what the church is is when they try to do so without the Scriptures. They might take a survey and ask their community in town, what are some things you would like to have in a church service? Whether a coffee shop or a certain light show or certain kinds of music. Let's let the people tell us, according to their opinions, what the church is supposed to be. Or others, they imagine that what the church really is, is the, it's the opinions of all the Christians who are gathered in here together. So we take our collective opinions, kind of like a democratic vote in a political party, and that's how we decide what the church is. That attitude towards what the church is is completely wrong. The second error that takes place is amongst those who say the Bible is our authority for what the church is, but then they proceed to add their own preferences to what is revealed in the Scriptures. This is most clearly seen in the Roman Catholic Church. It says the Scripture says this, but we're going to add ourselves, the papacy, these leaders, we're going to add the cardinals, our authority in deciding what the church actually is to what we find in the Scriptures. And maybe you're sitting there thinking that this is kind of an insignificant matter. There's always going to be a variety in different churches. Churches are going to function differently all over the place. And maybe this doesn't really matter. But I believe that the result of these errors is having a devastating impact on both the church's integrity and our witness in the world. Consider it this way. The essential purpose of the church in the world is to glorify God through the advancing of the gospel. That is, you remember that's related, the kingdom of God, what is it? It's made up of living souls that love God through Christ, who've repented and believed. That's the kingdom. The church's charge in the advance of this kingdom is in the advance of the gospel. And so if we're misunderstanding what the church is, how are we going to be equipped to do what we've been called to do as the church? So let me put it to you this way. What would you say if someone were to ask you, what is the church. What is the church? What would you say? Or what would you say if someone asked what a church is? And I make that distinction very intentionally. That's going to be relevant in the thoughts today. Is there a difference between the church, definite article, the, and a church? Is there a difference between a universal, invisible church that includes all of God's people for all time and the local bodies that we call churches? And I say again, the reason for departing from John today is related to this emphasis upon the kingdom of God. I pressed and and demanded, according to the authority of the scriptures last week, the kingdom of God is not with observation. It's not physical. It's not carnal. It's individual souls. And so you might hear that and think, okay, well, then the church is just simply Christians all over the world. And there's really no need or cause for us paying special attention to the local assemblies, the local manifestations in light of that. Well, one of the clearest texts in the Bible that brings both of these realities of that universal invisible church and the way it's meant to function in a visible way is found here in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Now I want to say this at the beginning. We've got to be fair. We've got to be honest in saying this. That when you look at the differences in individual local churches, that the vast majority of forms of customs and of practices that we observe in a local church are not commanded in Scripture. 
We've got to be honest about this. You go find a chapter and verse that tells me we're supposed to start our service at 1030-ish. You're not going to find it there. Good thing, too, because we're not very good at doing that, are we? But here's the point. We have a time schedule, don't we? We have a structure. We have a form. And we say, as a church, we're going to try to meet at this time. What authority do we have for adding that structure to what has not been revealed in the Scripture? Here's my point. That every local church, every establishment of people, they're going to be doing things from service times to membership roles. Go find that in the Scriptures. Membership roles, and that's something we'll consider later. Or a required order of any kind. And think of this. Someone says, I don't want all that order in the church. We're not going to have all those restrictions and requirements. That itself is a structure. If you say our pattern, our model is no structure. Well, that's your overarching structure. So what authority do we have for normalizing these orders, which are honestly and truthfully extra biblical? The question to be asking as we look in Ephesians 4 is, are the structures that we do employ, are they a means to the substance of Christ and his purpose for his people? That's what we want to know. Does starting at 1030 ish, does that help us to be able to worship Christ together and grow in our knowledge of the word of God? Is it a means to the end, which is Christ, or is it a restriction and a law that is shackling God's people? That's the question we want to get. That's the heart behind what I believe we're going to see in this text today. And I believe that if we're honest about the fact that our structures are not required and we're gracious towards those who use different structures when it's permissible, then I believe we'll be able to see the legitimate place that our structures in a local setting have and also will make us free to adhere to these structures as legitimate means to get us to Christ, who is the substance. All that by way of introduction. Begin looking with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes and says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the first thing we recognize about this, what's the first thing we've got to be honest about in these verses is that they were written to a particular assembly of Christian people known as the Ephesians. What am I saying? Paul said back in chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That may just sound like a simple greeting to you, but do you know how much theology is wrapped up in a statement like that? Consider this. There's a particular people that Paul is writing to that can be categorized according to their geographic region. These are saints. It's not just an invisible unknown body. Paul's writing to a church which exists in a particular region. So they're recognized according to being in Ephesus. The next thing we see is they're recognized as being saints. So it's not just people who live anywhere. There are certain things, elements that make up a church, a local church. You've got to be a saint to be a part of a local church. At least that should be our goal and our aim. You must be a Christian. And then the last thing we see is there is this reference to and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. This reference to being faithful is a recognition of a pattern in their lives that's able to be observed with some regularity. 
You're faithful. You're, you're one who I see. I can witness and observe your life and say there are certain things about this person that sets them apart. They're faithful. Now, that observation is a physical observation. We're seeing something that a person's doing in their everyday life that says faithful. These are the descriptions. Why well, I bring these things out. Why do I say this? The writing, the delivering and the reading of this epistle would have been practically impossible if there had not been a particular people to address, a particular place to send the letter, and Christian people to receive and read it. Now all of that just by observation there from Ephesians 1.1, now consider our text, Ephesians 4.1-3. He says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. So I'm asking, what is a church? Paul says, these are people that ought to have humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and maintaining unity in this, uh, unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All of these expressions are of necessity only realized in the context of a local church. You see, these things, these charges, they become little more than an empty sentiment if we try to apply them to some idea of an invisible, unknown, unidentifiable church. How am I going to be bearing with one another in love that I'm not having an ongoing personal relationship with? How do you do that? You can't do that. All of these things. How am I going to maintain unity in the Spirit with someone that I'm completely disconnected with and I have no regular, ongoing engagement with? I can't do it. The argument Paul is calling for a realization of these things in a very real personal context. You cannot do these things apart from a personal and local level. Now, I want to bring attention to something briefly. The majority of the uses of the word church, as you find it in the New Testament, the Greek is ekklesia. Actually, the word in Greek that would have better fit the word church would have been circa, but that's a different sermon for a different time. The point is, the word that's translated church is ecclesia, which means the called out ones or the assembly. This is the assembly of the saints. That's what the word means. And the majority of times you find that word in the Scripture, vast majority in fact, it's not referring to some invisible picture of God's people that cannot be defined and are not according to location. The vast majority, it's referring to a specific local assembly. Now that tells us a few things. The very use of the word church in the Scriptures, the vast majority of the time, is telling us that we're going to be able to know something about the people that make up this assembly. Where they live, what's going on in their lives. As a matter of fact, you would not have the content of the epistles if Paul, much of the time, didn't know the issues that those people in those local places were facing. And so it's not just these people live there, but these people who are connected there, we know some details about their lives. We know there are names listed, for example. Paul will refer at times to an individual or a group of people that he knew they were in a particular church. I'm saying that this is an intimate, vital, and locally realized expression known as the local church. Now, why is it important to make this point? I mean, obviously, everyone under the sound of my voice right now, you're sitting in a local church. So you see something of the value of our assembling together in this way. And yet, the problem seems to so much of the time be the way in which people are prone to think about or regard the local church. How often have you heard this expression? We are the church. 
or you invite someone to come and gather together with us and they say, you know, I, I worship God better out in the field, in the tree stand or doing something else, the cornfield, the wheat field. I worship God better on my own away from all those people, all those hypocrites. You'll hear expressions like that. As if the authority, understanding, accountability and fellowship that we're meant to enjoy primarily exist outside of and away from a local organized assembly. That's what I'm telling you about. It's not just the person who says, I don't think that churches should gather in a form like we do. I'm saying the attitude that's a cancerous type of thinking shows up when a person decides for themselves that they don't like a particular church. So they simply leave and find one they like better, making themselves the spiritual authority on the matter. This is the kind of thinking which regards the church in a way other than which God has revealed it to be. Now, let me be fair. I'm not suggesting that there are not churches which promote rank heresy and false teaching, which are not worthy of departing from with haste. There are churches that if you walk into them and hear Jesus is not the son of God, there's another way to be saved other than faith. Someone says something like that. Run quickly. Leave those places. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the idea that says the more common attitude that is people viewing the church as though they were a consumer looking to be satisfied. What church is going to give me what I want? The reality is we ought to be looking as those who are worshipers seeking to submit and worship in the context in which God has provided for us. So the first heading I'll leave you with is this, that the church is the institution locally. I mean, the local assembly is the institution whereby God has ordained that his people should be submitted to, encouraged by, instructed in and shepherded. And this institution of God is to be visible. It is to be particular and it's made up of personal relationships with known individuals and living interactions. That is essentially what a church locally is and how it is to function. So now and we'll, we'll see those themes fleshed out. Now we move along to verses 4 through 6. So he's telling us about these experiences together with one another, bearing in love, maintaining unity in the Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that just contradicted everything you just told us. You just told us that there's individual churches spread all over the place, several individual bodies that interact and assemble together. And Paul says there's only one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. Is Paul contradicting me? Is Paul contradicting himself? No. You see, the next thing we see is dealing with the sort of people who are supposed to make up these local assemblies. In other words, in verses 1 through 3, Paul's referring to the way that we function together in a local setting. Here in 4 through 6, he's reminding these people in this particular setting what's true of them as concerning their unity in Christ. This is what's true of every Christian in all places for all time. He's telling them that in order to communicate for them God's purpose and design 
for the local individual church. Do you follow the argument here? Here's the picture. Here you are at Ephesus. This is what's true of you here at Ephesus. Now let me tell you what's true about all of God's people for all time in order that you might live rightly as God's people in Ephesus. You see these two things go together. They go perfectly together. God's purpose and His love for all His people and the way that's supposed to be demonstrated and revealed in the local setting. In other words... What we see in verses four through six, one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father. All of these things. Basically, what we're seeing is the essential and necessary beliefs for Christian people, and they're not limited to the theological persuasions of any particular church. Surely it's okay that you and I at times disagree on what we understand the scriptures to be saying. Surely that's right that we challenge how would we ever sharpen one another if we always agreed on everything all the time. We're supposed to work together lovingly sharpening one another. But these are the essential things that we cannot disagree on. These are the things, the one faith, this is what we must be in agreement on. And you see, here's the thing. It's possible For a person to share in all of the truths, to share in the faith that we're looking at here, to truly be in the kingdom of God and never be a part of a local assembly. I don't advise it. I don't recommend you living as a Christian and not being united together in a local church. But salvation and knowing Christ is not necessarily going to come in the context of a local assembly. And praise God that it's not. But it is an ordinary pattern and it is the means that he's prescribed and it is the place in which you're going to have the ministry of the grace of God most fully realized in your life. You're hurting yourself if you're not a part of a local assembly in this way. But here's my point. Just because you are a part of a local assembly doesn't mean that you're one who is a part of this one body, this one spirit, this one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's possible for you to exist here, to gather in a place like this and never be made a part of this spiritual body. And as we saw in Christ's words concerning his kingdom last week, the kingdom of God is not of this world. It's never. Let me be clear. I'm asking, what is the church? The kingdom of God is never limited by geographic ethnic, political, or social barriers. If you and I, if we take it upon ourselves and say, you know what, I feel like maybe some of us need to go down to Mexico and try to plant some churches. If we have it in our mind that we need to take our social, political, ethnic, and cultural trends and impress them upon those people, that's not the message of the kingdom of God. Those things are going to vary on the local levels, but the kingdom of God has to do with the truth of Christ concerning this one, one faith. The kingdom of God is according to truth and it's made up of all those who have been united by faith to these essential realities. You remember what Jude said in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If you have believed the gospel, If you have believed that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you have been reconciled to God, though you're a sinner who deserves hell and the wrath of God, Christ died for you. If you believe that, then you're part of the universal, invisible body of Christ, period. 
And some people would call this the universal church or the big C church or in Revelation, the glorious church. This is one aspect of what it means. And the scripture uses the word church in this way at a few different places. Not the majority of times, but this is used. You're a part of that kingdom, that church, if you're trusting in Christ. And no amount of local church activity is ever going to add to or change that. You are not going to become more of a Christian by joining some local expression of a church. The question arises, however, does God's good purpose to provide for and care for you end at the moment of your salvation? I'm saying what's important concerning the kingdom of God is being made into a lover of Christ. And that that's the essential fundamental thing. That's why when I go into this town and I share Christ with people, I don't tell them you have to come to this assembly. That's not my priority. That's not the advance of the kingdom of God. Yes, we're supposed to disciple and teach and instruct all that he's commanded. But you know what? If the Lord's pleased to unite them to do that in another church, that's his prerogative. My interest, my aim, our goal must be as the church, the advance of this kingdom. That's our focus and our goal. But the question is, does God's purpose to provide for and care for you end when you get saved? Has he ordained a visible, real, living way for you to be built up, encouraged and shepherded? Verses 7 through 10 of Ephesians 4 go on to tell us this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So. In the last few verses, we were just considering in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, we're seeing the spiritual, invisible, universal body who are all united by a shared faith in the same Lord. And they're saved. They're in the kingdom of God. Here in verse 7, Paul begins appealing to specific and individual people that Christ has. Do you notice that in the text in verse 7? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, here's some true and glorious realities about the faith we've been brought into that's not only contained in this church, it's not only contained in you, this is true for all Christians for all time. And yet, he says, look here, there's grace been given to every one of you individual Christians. He brings it to the local, experiential, individual level. It's not only this big plan, but God takes an interest in individuals and he's concerned about individuals. Grace was given to each one of us. And so essentially, this is the argument that Paul is making. You may think, well, what is it talking about there when it says he ascended on high, led a host of captives, gave gifts to men. He ascended. It means that he also descended. He who descended is also the one who ascended. What is all that language about? Essentially, let me summarize it for you. It's not the focus of our thoughts today on the church, but it is gloriously related. Let me share this with you. Paul is saying this. Jesus Christ, he descended to the earth as a man. What for? In order to give grace to us in salvation by dying on the cross for our sins. But he says, in case you need to know this, you need to realize something. The grace of God has come to you in Christ is not even limited to your salvation. 
There's more that God has for you. How can I possibly say that? What more could there be than salvation? Well, it's not my words. It's what he's saying. There was grace given to each one of us according to what? The measure of Christ's gift. Now get this. Grab hold of this. The grace that is given is not according to the wealth of a pauper, a beggar, someone who has nothing to give. And the glory and the wealth of the riches of Christ is that He's able to save your soul. And there's this abounding, overflowing character of God's riches given to you. That's what it's saying. There's this, it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, if you take a very wealthy man, let's say, who says, you know what, I'm going to bless people with the financial wealth that I have. His ability to bless other people is going to be dependent on what? How much he has. What does Christ have? What is limited in his domain? What is withheld from the power of Almighty God to bless us with? And I'm not talking about a Mercedes or money. I'm talking about the glory of God revealed in blessing and loving his people. What does he say to us? What is it? What are the the riches of his grace that are seen in salvation? There is a a wealth that's magnified and that he showered us with additional gifts and his ascension. So I ask, what are these essential gifts and what do they have? What are these additional gifts? I might say, what are they and what do they have to do with the church? If you leave here thinking he got up there and said there's something even more important than the gospel, strike that from your brain. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that Christ has saved us and he has saved us in order to be reconciled to God and relate with him. And one of the ways that we're meant to relate with him and grow in our knowledge of him is according to these gifts that accompany his ascension. He ascended on high and gave gifts to men. And those gifts he's talking about are not being able to Throw somebody on the ground. Slay them in the Spirit. What are the gifts He refers to here? Verses 11 through 14. Here are the gifts. And He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is what we're hearing today. The love of God for you in Christ is such. That not only has he saved your soul. By punishing your sin and guilt in the cross of his son. But He's gifted you with a local context with which to be strengthened and protected. That's the argument. Christ ascended on high. He gave gifts to men. What are these gifts for? By the way, don't miss this. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And I've got to say this. So many people refer to me as a minister. That's true, I am. The Scripture says every saint is a minister. And it's my job to equip you all for the work of ministry. That means what we're doing as a body gathered here in a place like this is we're all seeking to contribute to ministry according to the various giftings and callings that God has placed upon us. But notice this. The gifts that Christ has given to the church are realized and they're enjoyed in a local context. We won't go into detail at this at this time for time's sake, But the gifts of apostle and prophet can be best understood, as far as I can tell, 
to be gifts to the church of the Scriptures. That's what we have in the Scriptures collected here. These are the result of the labors of the prophets and the apostles. God has gifted His people with a structure, with an order in His very Word. And then you go on from there and you see the next thing, the gift of an evangelist, which can be understood as the messengers that God uniquely gifts to send sharing the gospel with the lost. And then you have the gift of shepherds and teachers. Some people suggest that should be one word in the Greek, the shepherd teachers. Now, here's the idea. God has given the shepherd teachers in order to care for your soul and equip you to be a minister to God. Now, this is what I'm suggesting. I'm more than suggesting that this is the plain reading of this text. If you read it in its context, to despise or disregard the value of regular assembly in the local church is to neglect the gracious gift of Christ to His bride. Don't you see that the gift of the church, these gifts, they're gifts to us. They're not yokes of bondage to hold us down. They're to be enjoyed together. That we would enjoy and grow and love our time together. They would be built up, strengthened. They're gifts from Christ in which He was pleased to shower on us from the riches of His wealth in His ascension. As I say, notice how practical and observably these gifts are to be employed. The overseeing of and ministry to individual souls is something that takes place with a measure of intimacy and closeness in a local church. And this is true whether you're protecting a frightened sheep who's under attack or whether you're bringing a member in the church under discipline and calling them to repent. These, and you can go and search out all of the one another's. The way we realize them is through a living, real fellowship and attachment to one another. These gifts are realized in a local setting. Now here's the thing. The point of contention for many people comes when we start trying to establish a particular form, a particular structure or pattern in how we're supposed to observe these things. People are going to disagree. And the fact of the matter is, as we said in the beginning, the Scriptures don't tell us this is exactly what our connection to one another in the local assembly should look like in a practical sense. There's no such thing as a church role or membership role in the Bible. There's members of the same body functioning together but there's not the way that we necessarily practice things. And so here's my question. What, how are we supposed to observe and recognize the people who make up a local assembly? Well, I'll give you this. There are really only, it's a very short list of what is essential and essentially required for those who are considered a part of a local assembly. Here's what they are. Search these out from the text we've been looking in. The first thing, you must be born again. I'm sorry, sorry, Pado Baptist brothers. But if you don't have faith, if you're not a part, if you don't share in the one faith, then you're not a part of the one body. And if you're not a part of the one body, then that kind of means you're not supposed to be a part of the expressions of that one body, which is what the local church is. Here's the thing, you must be born again. You must be trusting in the finished work of Christ for you to be a part of one of these local, visible expressions of God's people. The second thing, you must be living according to the Scriptures and not in unrepentant sin. That's why we're supposed to practice things such as discipline. If a one who says in the local setting, think of how, how insane would that be? If I see a man and I hear he did some sin 10,000 miles away, how am I going to be able to lovingly and accountably discipline that person? 
It comes through real, living, local fellowships. Likewise, if one person is here and they visit this church one week and another church the next, and we rarely have this ongoing connection and fellowship, how is that going to be practically realized? These things come back to the local setting. But Christians who are part of a local church are supposed to be categorized by repentance of sin when they do and loving accountability. And the third thing is we must be committed to gather with the assembled ones if we're going to be considered a part of the assembly. If the word church means the assembly, if you're not assembled, you're not in the assembly. That makes sense. Pretty simple, isn't it? Now, obviously, there are emergencies. There's traveling. There's seeing family. There's all sorts of things. But as a style and pattern, we assemble together. So my three definitions of what's required for a local church membership, you must be a Christian. You must not be living in unrepentant sin. And you must be assembling together with the saints when they do. Now, there are many other biblical aspects to what happens in the context of a local church. But these are the most essential as to what it means to be a member. So then I ask, why then do we practice church membership here the way that we do? Maybe you don't know this. If you're a member, you do. If you're not a church member, this is the way we practice it. If you have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and you have been either baptized upon that profession, publicly proclaiming your faith in Christ, or you're willing to be, then we encourage you to talk to the elders and begin meeting with us and sharing your testimony of faith in Christ so that we can shepherd and love you well. And as you do that, we talk about those things in our church which make us perhaps distinct from another church. Those things which are pretty specific to the way that we believe here in this church and explain things and have openness, honesty and clarity. And then if all things continue down that path and we say, you know, we'd love for you to share your testimony in front of the church body and let those here listen to what you say about Christ, be encouraged, be lifted up and encouraged but also that there would be some accountability in your profession. And then as the church body, we receive you into the fellowship. And we consider a person who does those things a member of this body, unless they come under discipline, unless they live in unrepentant sin, give up the gospel, or if they move somewhere else and we release them to go and serve in another faithful local assembly. Now here's my point in saying all of this. That process I just detailed and described is not required in Scripture. Why do we do it that way? Why is it that we have these forms, these structures, these patterns? Should it be that anyone who gathers in this assembly as we're here today, should I just automatically, should Kelly and I automatically say that person's a member because they're here, they're assembled today? Well, no, no. Should we say that just because someone visits for a period of time that they're a member? Again, our conviction is no. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Perhaps in your mind, the thing that stands out in that reading is the obey your leaders and submit to them part. I'll tell you what, I'm a whole whole lot less concerned about that than the part that says we're going to give an account for your soul. We're going to answer to God for the way that we shepherd you. That means something to me. 
And so I asked the question, and, and again, without any hesitation, the leaders in this church, elders and deacons alike, would be prepared to tell you that our pattern for membership in this church is not commanded or required in the Scriptures. And other people practice it differently, and that's fine. It's not the form we're after. It's the substance. We see our way of recognizing these things as a way of asking, who are those that we're going to give an account to? Who are those we ought to be focused on shepherding and feel a sense of responsibility for? And that is the way that we observe it. But let me be clear to you. We do see the offices within the church that Paul states here in Ephesians 4, this gift of Christ and ascending on high. These offices are one of the chief means of Christ for continuing to love His people. For continuing to love His people. And the charge which comes to us as elders is that we will give an account for the souls we've been given to shepherd. And now I acknowledge there's a measure of responsibility that we feel any time there's anybody within the sound of my voice, whether a Christian or not, a child, an adult. There's a responsibility to shepherd, to try to win them to Christ, encourage them if they're a Christian already. But there is a very special interest in shepherding those who make up the flock that's been entrusted to us. We take this very seriously. How am I supposed to know? How do I know who I'm going to give an account for? Is it every believer on the planet? Is it every Christian in this town? My point in saying these things is that the goal in a realized church membership is not so that we can put a yoke around the neck of a saint. It's not so that we can give special country club preference to those who are part of our club. This is why. We ask for this in order that we might be better equipped to shepherd those who have been entrusted to us. You see, rather than some kind of recognition, you're going to have to recognize a person who's a part. If you're ever going to have the ability to practice discipline or any number of things, I'll tell you what, I'm a lot less interested in the legal aspects. You can talk to greater minds than me about why it is that members get to vote and all the legalities that go with that. And I'm not saying that's unimportant, but that's not really the focus of my interest nor this text. My focus is to say those who lead are supposed to invest themselves in a very special and unique way in the lives of those they're accountable for. Those who they're going to give an account to. And I'll try my best to shepherd those who don't go through our particular process because that's not the point. The point is it's a means to love you well, to shepherd you well. And we invite and encourage those who want to enjoy the riches of Christ's blessing to His people to come and be a part of what we're doing here. This is the way we encourage you to do that. And if you don't, it doesn't mean you're going to be treated as less of a Christian or blacklisted. If you don't conform to our structure, it just simply means this is our way of trying to pursue what we've been called to do. And at some point, we all are going to have to make practical, real decisions as best we can in light of the Scriptures of what this is supposed to look like. Our goal is the goal that's set before us here. This protection, this coming alongside, this seeing every Christian enjoying this building up so that they come to a fuller and fuller knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so I say, what's all this about? The local church. The universal invisible church, how the church is manifested to us. 
Verses 15 through 16 says this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, not just the individual bodies, the whole body joined and held together by every joint, which with it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's the picture. Christ is the head of all of his people for all time and all places. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And we have within this kingdom, there's the body of Christ, all his people. And then you have these local manifestations of that body according to location, according to assembling together and enjoying of these gifts. But our goal is not to enjoy the gifts here in a way that's disconnected from the head. It's not disconnected from the means and ends and purposes for this universal body, the whole body. Here's the point. The grace and love of Jesus Christ for his bride is universally true. He loves every single member of his body with the same relentless love. And the nature of his love is such that he's blessed his people with real living and personal relationships. And not only relationships, but real and living accountability in local churches. I say again, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with state or national powers. It has nothing to do with even organized ecumenical movements. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon us locking arms with every other person or group out there that says something about Jesus. That's not the kingdom of God. It's not dependent on that. It's not dependent on the carnal glories of a physical structure or even the blessings that God's provided in a building such as ours. The kingdom of God is the realm in which Christ Jesus dwells. The kingdom of God is the invisible supernatural state of a Christian's heart. The kingdom of God exists within the people for whom Christ died. This is the church universally and without exception. No one's left out of this number who is in Christ. And the physical, visible demonstration of this kingdom which is God's testimony of His power to save, His testimony for His love for His people. This is the context in which His love is most clearly seen in the local church. That we're all being built up in love, conformed to the image of the One who died for us. And you see, my prayer is that our love for one another in this setting would be a reflection of His love for us. Here's my final word to you. If you're concerned, if you're one perhaps who's not a member of this church, and you're concerned about that, let me be very clear in saying this. Everyone who is a member is more concerned about your place in the kingdom of God than in our gathering. Surely, if you're saved, we want to be a means to encourage you. And we welcome you to come and pursue Christ with us. What of your soul? Have you trusted Christ for yourself? Do you know this kingdom? This one where the Son of God dies to redeem His people? That you're forgiven of your sin? Forgiven of the judgment that's due you? It's gone in Christ? Is that true of you? And if it is... My encouragement to you is 
enjoy the fullness of the riches of the blessings in Christ. And very clearly, some of those things are meant to be enjoyed as gifts that He's given to the church through these different means. And so, I pray and I hope that that has helped your understanding of the relationship between the universal and visible church and how it's manifested and expressed in local settings. And most of all, Christ's love for His bride, which is revealed in both of these things. So with that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank You for Your great love. I thank You for the testimony of Your Word, which is open before us and tells us of Your love and what You've done in order to save us. It tells us of the structures which You have ordained and You have instituted And Father, I pray for grace that we might be able to pursue that which you've given us to do. And Lord, that you would give us graciousness towards others as we do so. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in all these things. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.